Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 183. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 183 you're listening to. My guest today is Craig Bowen, who is the owner and operator of Tempo House Recording in Baltimore, Maryland. He's worked with a number of bands, including Animal Collective, Lungfish, and Jackie O. Motherfucker. That's right. And uh, his studio is inspired by, of all things, the John Peel Radio Show. So, uh, we're going to talk about Tempo House in our interview coming up here. So, yes, Craig Bowen coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, let's talk clients for a sec. Now, I'm talking music clients specifically. So, sorry to my location sound and game sound folks. Um, I think it's pretty a, a common occurrence. I think sometimes those of us who deal with music clients we forget about the survival of the music client. We get so wrapped up in the gear and what other producers and engineers are doing with the gear and their techniques. No judgment. We all do it. But let's focus on those clients for a minute. It's in our best interest to make sure that any information we come across that will help those clients survive as musicians that can only be a good thing. I can't see the downside to that. So if you've got any bit of information, advice that you think is good to pass on, do so. So let me tell you a story. And you, if you listen to the podcast, you've heard me tell this story to Bobby Osinski. I have a mastering client. He comes over. We're having a chat. And I say, what's new? You know, what's been happening? And he says, well, funny thing. My wife and I did this record together. And, uh... We got a, a call like about a year or two after putting the record out from a friend at Pandora who said, uh, hey, you guys should uh, register for Sound Exchange because, you know, they collect royalties, streaming royalties. And I think you guys are getting a few plays here at Pandora. That might help you out. So my friend says, sure. Yeah. OK. Yeah, we'll do it. Thinking nothing of it. Signs up. I think it was two weeks later, he said check for $10,000 shows up. And after that, it's been a steady $2,000 a month in streaming royalties. Now, I know that everybody's telling us, oh, it's just awful, right? The music industry is a mess. Well, I think it's shaking out to be just a completely new paradigm, a new, a new thing, and it's working out. And this client is, is my example of that. So I immediately, you know, dug deeper into sound exchange which i knew about but hadn't really paid attention and here's the deal they collect royalties that people like pandora and sirius xm and webcasters are required by law to pay for streaming musical content and they're paid to services like sound exchange and the split is this featured artists get 45 percent rights owners get 50 percent and non-featured artists get five percent right so if you own the master and you're the featured artist and you're putting this record out on your own, you're going to get a chunk of dough. 
because you're not going to have to wrestle with a major label or any label for that matter. So all your DIY artists, they benefit from this greatly. So I immediately made sure that another band I was working with knew about this and because I know that they're not making any money really off their their recordings. So here's where, of course, you you know where this is going. You, it comes back around to you because if they're doing well, then, and they have good experiences, you know, they're going to come to you and your peers and you keep the ecosystem fresh. You keep things moving. The artists can put out music. They make money. They can put a little bit of that money back into recording. Right? Makes total sense. Let's wrap it up here. And the idea is, is this. If you have information that can benefit your musical clients or any of your clients, whatever, whoever your clients are, you need to get that information to them. You need to make sure that they know about that thing that can help them survive. Because if they die out and they've got to go and get a day job and give up that musical career, well, you've lost a client. And it's, a, it's one thing to lose a client because they want to go try some somebody that's different, try a different approach. That's a whole other story. But if you lose a client because they just couldn't survive, well, you know, I know there's an argument for, you know, survival of the fittest. But I think it benefits you to help them try to survive. So that's my rant for the day. Yeah. Help them survive, folks. All right, let's get some coffee here. Mmm, that's good coffee. So anyways, it's summertime. I don't know if that's official, but feels like it's summertime. And uh, it's summertime, you know, usually uh, our friends over at Universal Audio do some really great deals, and uh, this summer is no different. So they're doing this thing. It's called the Apollo Twin Platinum Vocal Promo. Basically, it runs through June of 2018. And uh, if you purchase and register any new Apollo Twin Mark II or Apollo Twin USB interface, you're going to get uh, Auto-Tune, Manly, and UA plugins for free in the deal. So, you know, it depends on which one you buy, whether you buy a solo or a duo or a quad. Now, obviously, if you buy the quad, you're going to get all the plugins, in, including the uh, Pure Plate Reverb, which is a fantastic little plugin. Um, so check it out. I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes, but you obviously can go over to uh, uaudio.com slash twin dash vocal dash promo, or I'll just put a link in the show notes and you can go there. That's right. So that's the Apollo Twin Platinum Vocal Promo. Check that out. All right, let's get some more coffee. Mm. What's the end of that? What does Dave Grohl say? Fresh pots. Yeah, Dave Grohl, great drummer, <laughs> coffee drinker, no doubt. Hey, uh, I did say I was going to Europe this summer, and I am. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna be in London shortly, and uh, I get to hang out with my friend Jules from Gear Sluts, longtime friend, good guy, uh, runs a great website, and uh, we sponsor the Audio Life Sub Forum over there. And if you're tired of the gear discussion, I get it, no problem. Just go to the Audio Life Subform. It's a great companion to working class audio. It's I, I say it a million times. It's a lot of the same topics. And uh, yeah, a lot of good things to talk about there. Work-life balance and travel and family and health and money and all, all that stuff. So check it out at gearsluts.com, the Audio Life Subform. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's get into it here. 
We're going to have a chat. So let's do it. Craig Bowen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, Craig, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. I'd like to know a lot about your world. I was checking out the website uh, for Tempo House Recording. Oh, cool. Looks like a great place, beautiful looking place as well. Before we get to that, I, I kind of want to get a sense of where you've come from. So mm-hmm. where'd you grow up? Catonsville, Maryland, which is just about six miles outside Baltimore. Born and raised, all, you know, there. It's totally where I'm from. Yeah, I guess I started you know, being in bands in high school. And after being in a couple, you know, of uh, bands, you know, we eventually got around to recording and I was kind of interested in the technical side of of that. So I kind of took it up, took it upon myself to be the the member of the band that, that would do the recording. Did music take a pr- uh, precedence before recording or vice versa? Definitely music first. They sort of run, I guess they swing back and forth sometimes um, in terms of you know, how I identify, like, what my actual interest is, you know, like, what what my primary interest is. But definitely I came to it through being in bands and and doing music primarily. And at what point did audio become so prevalent in your life that you said, I'm going to do this and this is going to be something I do for a living or something I do uh, more than anything else? Yeah, I guess um, when I was... Come, like leaving high school around that age, the guy that I was in a band with, a good buddy of mine, we both moved out of our folks' house into a warehouse in Baltimore City. And this was around about 93, I guess the spring of 93. We moved into a building, which was just a five-story warehouse on Baltimore Street. The person whose warehouse we were taking over had been running a recording studio, a great guy called Tony French. And he was very much the man to go to for recording around that time. So he had, this guy, Tony French, had a studio in the place that we were moving into. You know, something about seeing him, I mean, he had been doing it for a living. He was moving out uh, at that point to pers- to get back into architecture, which was what his career ended up being. But he left behind the studio. It was a very inspiring place. I guess that was definitely where it started to become something that I wanted to do as at least a trade, you know, like this, I could mm-hmm. see this being something that... Uh, you know, it, it seemed like a, a really worthwhile, satisfying thing to to have as a, as a craft that you did. Just see, I mean, he was you know seeing somebody do it firsthand. Like that that was that was the first time where I felt like I could participate in it. It was you know it was a it was a very sort of quite developed studio that he had, but it was very DIY. It was just really inspiring thing to see. And to do it, you know, just in a warehouse and with equipment that you cobble together, and you build the rooms yourself with you know, with you and your friends doing carpentry. And um, so seeing that for the first time, it was definitely where I sort of took the direction started to to happen. And um, I eventually had to move out of there. And so the next place I took over, um, it, was, it was definitely a more focused, you know, I'd, I'd selected my next living conditions or situation based on the ability to run a studio there. So it, it really progressed from there. Was Tony French kind of a, would you call him a mentor? Definitely. We didn't end up working together very much, but he he's the guy I would call if I had problems with like, how do you make such and such connection on this machine? And we pretty quickly diverged in approach. Uh, you know, he was, um, I think that I was trying to work w- with a certain sort of philosophy that just thinking back now, it's funny because we, we disagree. We ended up disagreeing on a lot of things that, you know, like 
ways to track and affect the sound when you're working with it and you know using eq and compression and things like that we ended up not agreeing on that stuff but yeah he i would as, as far as mentor, mentors go, for sure, Tony French would be the one. If not in a stylistic way, definitely in a in a way of showing that this could be a life a life pursuit. Yeah, he went he went into architecture ultimately. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did, he continued to record for some years, but then I guess uh, started a family with his wife. I think he now he's in D.C. Uh, working for a firm. That's interesting. And <clears throat> how did that affect you seeing him leave? And the mm -hmm. decisions you ultimately made in your career. Hmm. That's interesting. How much did that affect me? Uh, you know, I always knew that it wasn't a money-making thing, that, you know, like a sustainable, you know, career move. So as far as that, you know, being discouraging or indicating anything, I, I think... I think I simply saw it as him sort of aging out of it, frankly. There might have been a, a small amount of um, sort of thanklessness that he felt as he moved on, you know, because... But I, I, I genuinely feel like he got what he wanted to out of it. And I think his moving on was more just he had other pursuits that he wanted to... And skills that he wanted to exploit. And, you know, I think... I think he was on his second kid, so it, it all that all mm. very much made sense that those were the choices that he was making. I don't think it affected my trajectory or how I my attitude toward it, but I saw him. It's like okay, so you can you know you can be somebody that you know I admire, and you know like you know I still think that the records that he was making when I you know when I was getting to know him are way better than anything I've ever made since. You know, like, I guess that's just when you hear a record, empirically it can be proven otherwise, but you know, you you, you had such a, you know, coming of age experience with cert certain records that, you know, like I feel like I could never match his, you know, his taste and his touch on recording sometimes. <laughs> and to see somebody like that then sort of just like walk away from it, you know, it's like seeing a, mu a musician that you love just like move on to something else. And it's, I guess... You can't help but feel a little sadness in it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see somebody that you regard as a mentor kind of move on. Where did, where did you guys, like after Tony left, mm -hmm. wh what occurred? What what went down in that warehouse? What, what growth happened? Well, it was honestly pretty hard to get momentum in that place that I, that, um, that Tony left and I sort of took over. I think it was, I was sort of out of my depth trying to create a studio from scratch on my own at that point. After that, the building ended up getting sold or something like that. Anyway, we had to to move on. And then, so I was mentioning that I had found this other place in another part of Baltimore, sort of downtown, that had tons of space. It was very raw, but it had tons of space. And uh, that's when I really started to, uh, you know, as I was moving in, I learned a fair amount from being in the other location. So that's when I started to actually accumulate equipment and divide up rooms in such a way that, you know, there was a dedicated control room and like multiple recording environments. So it was moving into this other place, which was actually called The Jar. It had been a sort of a punk space before I took it over. So there was still graffiti all over the walls when I moved in from like, you know, all these AMREP bands that had come through Baltimore and stuff. It was moving out of the place on Baltimore Street to this next place when I really started to, like I said, like accumulate equipment and design, like set up a studio and sort of design it. And then also after that, what happened is I, through doing music, I ended up playing with this um, this other musician, a drummer called Adam Cook. And he and I hit it off immediately just with our attitude toward music and, and stuff like that. But he actually had graduated from Berkeley. So he had a sort of an engineering background. And he's a sort of th like thoughtful, organized person. 
And anyway, it was through meeting him, uh, he and I ended up kind of really developing the studio where it was like we had set rates, we had, uh, you know, a dedicated phone line where we could schedule bands. And like that's, I guess that was the, sort of the next phase of me doing recording was like working with Adam, you know, having a name for the studio, for instance, and uh, things like that. That's that's very adult engineer of you all. <laughs> a, a phone line and a calendar. Yeah. And a ledger <laughs> at, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Even a ledger. Wow. Okay. <laughs> What was guiding you? Was he guiding you or was it, was it, were there other factors that were kind of pointing you in the direction of this is how you run a studio? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess working, like partnering up with, with Adam, I guess we, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of sort of skills and experience that, that I lacked in, in the sort of practical realm and, and, you know, in that of like seeing the importance of keeping meticulous books and things like that, stuff that didn't really necessarily occur to me, just wanting to make records, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I think one thing that really sort of got me fired up and still, like, I think it remained being sort of a guiding treatise for me all these years is totally, um, that guy, Tony French actually is the one who handed me what I hate about the recording industry by Steve Albini, that, that essay that he wrote, which sort of yeah. out, outlined ethical practices, basically, you know? I don't know, this just really got me excited to to sort of, you know, pursue something, with, you know, that had a certain degree of morality to it or something like that. I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things that keep you recording. I mean, everything from, you know, the personalities that you encounter to like, you know, wanting to help bands that can't otherwise afford, you know, to create a, a service for them just in the in the furtherance of, you know, keeping art moving forward, you know, working with bands you know, communicating with them. You know, in Baltimore, there was very few studios that were, uh, that were function. I mean, I guess that's always been part of the case. But like at, at that point, um, one was really expensive, which was out of the reach of most small groups. And then the other one that was slightly more accessible was, you know, you had a, a very uh, small staff of, of bands that, you know, each with their quite developed quirks and personalities I was eager to provide an alternative to that, just be more informal and just better than a garage boombox recording, but, um, you know, something that people didn't feel compelled to spend all of their money to get a single finished, you know. So, yeah, providing an alternative for bands. Yeah, for sure. I got to ask, you know, being in Baltimore, I mean, you're a stone's throw away from D.C. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that uh, Donzi and Tara and Inner Ear and and Discord Records would have kind of a a halo effect, mm -hmm. so to speak, on everything, or at least influence things. Was that the case? You know, we all loved Discord bands, and we would go to DC. And then there's you know there's a couple of sort of suburban areas between Baltimore and DC that would have you know the firehouse shows and 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 things like that, shows in churches. But you'd be surprised how little of a mixing there was between the two scenes. You know, there's definitely a lot of stylistic overlap, but, you know, I think just DC was 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 very much its own thing. And um, Baltimore really developed with, I mean, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, DC labels that were putting out Baltimore bands and vice versa. For people who live in Baltimore, I'm sure they're so tired of hearing this, but having a studio in, in Baltimore, what was that like on a day-to-day -day basis, because mm -hmm. I think most people's only real exposure 
to Baltimore is seen through the eyes of the show The Wire. Sure. So what was the reality on the ground? Uh, the Wire is actually, it's, it's, uh, it's very thorough and, and accurate in a lot of respects, of course. I mean, all of that exists. Everything that you see in The Wire is totally in Baltimore. But, you know, the lifestyle portrayed in The Wire is, is definitely there if you're in it, if you seek it out. If you're looking for that, you'll definitely find it in Baltimore. The place where I am now, it's a custom-built studio, and it's in an area called Baltimore Midway, which is kind of a sort of an industrial area that bumps up against an area with a lot of vacant houses and, and things like that. So it's a pretty tough neighborhood, but it's uh, it's surprisingly well integrated into, I mean, what we're doing here. Like the, the studio is, is um, it's kind of like the whole, the compound as a whole where, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's where several people live and there's a... Uh, you know, maybe a half a dozen small businesses in here. Like we have, um, you know, we have kids from the neighborhood come through on a fairly regular basis. They come in and they work on bikes. They come in and, you know, help with with doing maintenance on the buildings and stuff. It's been really, really cool aspect of, of living in Baltimore is that like you see things that change your mind all on a daily basis. I find myself regularly encountering situations that, you know, may seem very threatening or very precarious. But if you just kind of, you know, leave your preconceptions behind for a little bit, you you can really have your your attitude changed about situations, which is something that, that I haven't been able to find in other cities. I mean, I, that, I, mean, I think that's why I'm biased to living and staying in Baltimore. It's just the, the depth of of characters that, that live here. It's funny this, this morning, there's this kid that lives in the neighborhood. I think he's, I think he's 15 and, uh, he's always, you know, bugging me to get studio time. Cause he, you know, so he can rap over these instrumentals that he brings by. And I, you know, I put him off occasionally cause I, you know, it's the last thing I want to do when I'm coming home from work or something like that. But, um, you know, I kept putting him off and he, and the other day he, uh, he was like pleading with me to come in and, and lay some lyric, like spit over this instrumental. And I was like, all right, well, I got to go to work at nine in the morning. But so, and he was like, come on, man. And he convinced me that he was going to be here at eight this morning and come over. And sure enough, I was just surprised that he came dressed in his like school uniform with his backpack bring and brought over his little galaxy phone so he could lay down an instrumental track and then spit over it before he went to school this morning. It was just really touching that there's this, this enthusiasm for these, you know, these kids that, that live in the neighborhood. I don't know. It was, it's really touching. It's a really great part of the location where the studio currently is in this neighborhood. It's been here for a couple of years now, and it's just, uh, it's just really nice to be part of this sort of inner city community in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, like the neighborhood that we're in looks like you might see in some of the scenes of the wire for sure. But uh, once you're here, it's like you, you realize how, you know, how mature and kind and uh, open-minded these you know, these kids are that are, you know, that would not necessarily make you feel that when you first encounter them. When you're in inner city environments, you know, I mean, I could tell you just walking down the street in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's pretty nutty, you know, needles everywhere, people passing out and, you know, it's not a great place for a kid. So if you take uh, a bright light, like a studio situation that is yeah. a potential ticket out of a maybe not the greatest uh, situation for, for a lot of young kids in these environments. Yeah. There's there's some racial elements there, but there's also mm-hmm. some generational elements mm-hmm. there that kind of crisscross. And it's like, uh, how old are you? I'm 43. Okay. So, you know, 43 and 15, right? So, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there is, it doesn't matter who you are 
43 and 15 is those are two ages that are going to have very different ideas about the world it's very inspiring it's great it's this unforeseen byproduct that is so enjoyable you know i mean when we when i first started doing the studio here you know these kids would come and they'd sort of like i'd park and they'd surround my car and they'd you know they'd they'd seem like these like urchins that i'd have to like fend off but then you know it just quick really quickly became like i watched them grow up over the past you know five years you know after you know because that's how long i've been acquainted with the with the compound over here yeah it's like one of those things it's like you how a situation like that can change you for the you know just change your attitude toward things. It's really what life is all about. It's it's like, yeah, it's this unforeseen side effect that I really appreciate. Yeah. And yeah, just keeping the kids like occupied. I mean, so, I mean, these bright kids that are just so bored, you know? And, and it's interesting because imagine it from their perspective, like here's this guy who can help give them an opportunity to do what they, what they love to wrap over whatever it is. Sure. And to take that and to show that and to give to get the, the pride that comes with that of, hey man, check me out. I'm on this recording that I did this morning. It's amazing also, there's, a, there's this other thing about it. It's like, they can, you know, get a, you know, do this track, mix it. And I can email it to them or give them an MP3 and they can post it on Instagram by like 10.30 in the morning and their friends are already passing it around and talking about it. Like this track that they made this morning or last night, it's, it's amazing, to, you know, to think of how quickly that, you know, become, it, it's like this other form of dialogue and like, you know, their friends are like encouraging and, you know, they, they've got their own studios that they rap and, and post things. It's, um, it's this immediacy that's really astounding. I, I don't know what to you make know, of it, frankly. <laughs> It's really interesting here because look at look at it from when you were young, you know, yeah. uh, if you come from any kind of white punk rock background mm -hmm. and and then you encounter this situation where these guys are the new punk rockers in some way and sure. that what they have at their disposal for social media and in an instantaneous dissemination of of this audio is it's really cool yeah, and i've got some other friends of mine who are, who teach music in in inner city schools and pretty deplorable like what the textbooks that they give the teachers to impart like music theory or like piano or trumpet you know these kids it's not that they're not open to it it's just where the fuck do you start it's like teaching a kid who has you know so this uh this buddy of mine he'll like let them use these, you know, these little stations to record their voice and they'll just work with, you know, loop, like loop programs or apps or however they make their, their beats. And he'll like sort of guide them and show them like how they can put in a chorus and do certain arrangement things. And he'll use that as a way of like, just letting them guide the process. And he'll say, you know, well, if you want to like here, you, if you want to put in a hook, here, use these notes and because such and such works. And he, so he's found an opportunity to show them that there's a theory behind music, you know, while, while letting them sort of run it. It's, it's cool. It's, it's like having to adapt to the times, you know, it's, it's great. I, I won't go, I won't take us down a rabbit hole here, but you know, doesn't really matter ultimate. I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who's in office. It seems that inner city programs uh, get cut time after time after time. It seems like a ginormous cliche. And yeah. it's it's great when people on the ground, such as yourself, like I said, can provide this like beacon of of hope for some that are economically challenged 
to do something. Yeah, I can't resist. You know, it's like I, I, uh, uh, it's a weird. That's a weird way to put it, but like it's it's feels like this kind of um, a little bit more than like a like a duty. Like I, it, it, I don't know any word. I'm not finding the words for it. You know, it's just it's something that it's uh, it's just fun way to like share the resource that I have. Yeah, I I feel like like what you said. It's like you can't rely on these inefficient programs that are are oftentimes corrupted or you know just kind of half-assed and you know like I live here so like I actually live at the studio so they see me on a regular basis so I'm going to be here and you know I ha- I'll have the ability like, even if I'm in a shitty mood one day I'll see them in the next couple of days and and we'll riff and we'll you know try to do something um but it's like yeah I feel like I'm in a position where there is a stability I feel like that's a crucial part of it, you know. It's you know, it's it's a form of mentorship that we really haven't talked about on the podcast. It's you know, we're always talking about mentorships like, well, who's inspiring you to, you know, record mm. and do this and we, I've never thought about it from this angle, but really in essence you are a mentor to these kids in the neighborhood. I yeah. bet. Well, that's yeah, I I hope so and um I mean, that's the one thing about this, the, the compound, which I'd like to talk a little bit about because yeah, I think you'd be do. interested in it. This is uh, through a grant, some friends. Well, it wasn't a grant, actually. You know what it was? It was an art prize. And the it was a cash prize for, for an art project that some, some friends of mine did. With, with that money, they put it toward a down payment to buy this property. And it's, you know, it's almost like a full city block. And it was, you know, industrial buildings. There were a couple of garages that were completely derelict and falling down with no roof. There was like four row houses that were long vacant. There was a main common area where they had some offices. And there was like an area where they used to work on forklifts. And there was a courtyard. But it was all very raw. It was just like many other blocks in, you know, shit neighborhoods in Baltimore. That was five, six years ago that they bought this with this idea that they were going to make this live workspace uh, and do it all self-funded, like on their own, like not, you know, uh, not try to get sponsorship or, or anything like that, or wait for, you know, somebody to come along and, and invest. They, they just worked on it. It's been gradual and, uh, but diligent. And so just one by one, they, they turned over these buildings. They started, you know, with making a, you know, two or three studio spaces. And then they, you know, just gradually built them up and built them up. And um, so I come in about midway between the origins. And and now this is about three years ago. Um, I was talking to Nick, the owner of the, of the space, you know, he's a art student in his thirties. I mean, he's, he's a MICA grad coming at it from that angle. And so I had just lost my studio in uh, 2000. 10 or something like that. I'll have to remember the dates. No, it was later. Uh, There was a fire in the studio. And so I was kind of bouncing around at the time and I I approached Nick and I knew that Nick was interested in refurbishing parts of this compound that that were pretty fucked up. Um, And we just started talking about it. And he pointed at these two garages that were, uh, that he wanted to do something with. They had just been sitting on the edge of the property. And I sort of sketched out what I would love to see, which is, you know, a two-story live room and, uh, and a, you know, control room on the second floor and a kitchen lounge below kind of thing. You know, just the basic floor plan of what I, we actually have. And, um, and yeah, like fast forward a year and a half later and it's, it's fully constructed and wired up. So this is a custom built studio. 
But I guess the reason I was really bringing it up is like the, the compound itself has taken it very seriously, the responsibility to mentor these kids. So there's always kids, whether they're working in the frame shop or doing, you know, working in the wood shop, doing maintenance on the buildings, putting on roofs, doing demolition, working on bikes. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool. Like that's one of the key components. We also have a sort of a small uh, library with, you know, where, where some of the kids work after school, but that is, that is a sort of a strong component of this, of the, of the compound is to have this sort of informal mentorship program. And some of some of these kids that stick around long enough, they become, you know, involved and be involved to a point where, you know, they're making decisions about planning and things like that. You know, it's it, I've seen these kids sort of develop and come up through the, you know, through the uh, through the years to, to, to being, you know, trusted with the keys to the place as much as any of us here. It's, it's, it's been, it's really, it's really touching and inspiring and really, um, I think it's made a huge difference in a lot of these kids' lives for sure. Definitely helps keep them out of trouble or, you know, just keeps them occupied and teach them skills. I mean, it's just, yeah, you name it. I mean, it's just got so many benefits. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping. But if you really want to help our cause with them, make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCA free ship. And that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Glass Audio. So there it is. Check it out. Roswellproaudio.com. Interesting how... Um I know a lot of us get involved in the recording world for various reasons. You know, I think we all have, uh, uh, for the most part, I think, you know, many of us have uh, good intentions, but objectively, you know, talking to you about this, I think that, you know, a lot of us get into it for, uh, you know, purely selfish reasons. And I'm not, you know, saying mm -hmm. that's a bad thing. Sure. You know, you're looking out for yourself. You're trying to build something for yourself. So no, you know, no judgment there, but You've kind of stumbled into this situation, it seems, where you have the opportunity to do what you love to do uh, in recording, but at the same time, you have uh, the ability to really make an impact on a lot of people's lives that, you know, maybe uh, some of those kids in the neighborhood, you know, they love it and they're they're happy to, to, to be there, but maybe in another part of town, mm -hmm. that thing doesn't exist. And the, the difference that can make in... You know, two people's lives, uh, you know, one from one part of town, one from another part of town. Maybe they're economically challenged, but one just happens to have a <laughs> studio and a wood shop and a library yeah. and, and this kind of mentorship program. What what a difference that can yeah, make. Yeah, absolutely. And just in, in the, you know, in the way that you, like growing up, just encountering a variety of people. You know, I mean, these kids mm -hmm. that are 15 to 19, I mean, they're, you know, you talk to them and they're. You know, they have a maturity level that I did not have at that point. I, and, and I don't know, it just when you they've had to deal with a lot more shit on their own. I think that's safe to say in a lot of these situations growing up faster, kind of in, the, in, a, in a street situation. You know, I feel good that they you know, that there's a situation where they're dealing with a wider range of people. You know, the people that come through here are not necessarily the people they would, 
you know, that their peers across town would encounter, you know, and, you, you know, it's, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's, it's, that's another cool aspect of it. Tell me about this fire. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was unfortunate for sure. This was, uh, so I had taken over a warehouse space and I I guess this was about 2000, the spring of 2011. And it was, um, it was a very raw concrete block, uh, or center block box, you know, with a concrete floor. At this point, this is probably the third or fourth studio that I had built, but I decided to really go, I was at the point in my life when I really wanted to sort of go in on, you know, doing things the way I'd always wished I had in the past, you know, with like the you know, fortifying the exterior walls and putting in the heavy-duty glass block for soundproofing, floating the floor of the control room, putting in HVAC, um, do all new custom wiring, putting in a lounge, and, um, you know, just really doing all of this stuff that I that is difficult to do in most rental situations. That's the other thing. It was a rental, which, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're at, you're always at somebody's mercy, but I just, I was fired up at that point, I just went for it. And I thought that it was going to be, um, you know, just, uh, just where I was going to be for, for good, you know? So I really put everything I had into it and, uh, built this space up. It was, it was cool. It was, um, again, it was a situation where on the other side of this complex of buildings, there were, um, band practice spaces and there was like a, an actual art gallery where, you know, several students were, from the Institute. Well, I guess recent graduates from the Institute had started this gallery. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought they were the coolest, uh, the coolest guys. And, uh, we got along really well. There was a couple of bands that came out of that scene that from that actual, just from that, that gallery, the kids who ran that gallery, which I, I really liked anyway. Yeah. It took about a year and a half to build up this one corner of the building. It was operating as a studio for maybe a year just completely unrelated to my studio, unrelated to the uh, the gallery or the band practice space, there was a fire that completely wiped out a whole section of the building. It was it was like I can't remember how many alarms, but it was it 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 was a the the part that burned was a automotive like a a body shop. So they had just tanks of solvents and gas and oil that just burned all day and all night. <laughs> it was just raging. So. Yeah, so the building was completely condemned. We had to move all our shit out of there. You know, none of the equipment, none of the tape machines or the console or musical gear, like we had a grand piano in there. Thankfully, that stuff wasn't destroyed. There was tons of water on the floor from where it just rolled uh, it rolled across the uh, the floor, but it kept moving, which was cool. So it, nothing was sitting in water for too long. But we did have to completely move all of our shit out of there. I had to leave uh, all the work, all of the doors and hardware and all of the uh, HVAC had to get left behind. (gasps) So so that was like, you know, there was this back and forth with the building owner because, you know, that part of the building hadn't been destroyed. It hadn't even been damaged by the fire. Whatever it was, like the, everybody lost their certificate of occupancy, you know, use of use and occupancy permit was, was suspended. So nobody could actually be in there. And that was a, process involving the city and the fire marshal and insurance. And so it was this long protracted process of like, maybe we can move back in, maybe we can keep everything as it was. And then I'd get an update like three months later saying, well, it doesn't look good because we have to demolish this part and it's going to be too expensive to keep your stuff intact. So that went on for like 18 fucking months. And um, it was, it was really exhausting. 
no, not sure whether I could get back in there. And then, you know. Mean, meanwhile, your gear is in there. The, no, the gear was in storage. Oh, okay. Okay. So you were able to get your, your recording gear right. out of there. Okay. That's right. The, the stuff that was left behind was like all of the hardware. Like, by hardware, I mean like the expensive doors and the windows and the yeah, capital yeah. improvements type stuff. Yeah, yeah. That then the, the the building owner, I guess he was just tired of it, of all the shit too. So he ended up showing his true colors and just basically saying, you know what, I'm keeping all your all of your build out, and I don't know what to tell you, man. Like you have to move on. And it it was yeah, it was it was pretty crushing. I couldn't drive past the building for like a year without just gritting my teeth and wanting to choke somebody. It was tough. I'm. I tell you, I'm so much happier where I'm at now. It's. It's cool. It's like got past it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it was only. You know, it was just a bunch. It was, you know, it's just a little bit of money that it's I lost. Money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was. That was pretty devastating. And it was in the wake of that that uh, that you know I started bouncing around to a couple of temporary locations, and then yeah, eventually started that conversation with Nick Wisniewski about building this place custom made. Yeah. And another interesting thing you, you might appreciate just from being out where you are, um, in Baltimore, uh, right in the wake of that ghost ship, does that like the, the unfortunate disaster yeah, the, there? And, and just for the listener, the ghost yeah. ship, uh, fire was a, a warehouse fire in Oakland. Um, uh, you know, like 10 miles away from me where uh, many people lost their lives. And if you just Google ghost shit fire, you'll totally know what we're talking about. Yeah, it was, it was crushing. And um, in the wake of that, as I'm sure in a lot of other cities, but in the wake of that in Baltimore, a lot of the sort of quote unquote art live, you know, like art spaces that, mm -hmm. you know, that would do occasional shows, you know, maybe they had a couple of band rehearsal spaces, maybe half a dozen people lived there because there are a lot of buildings like that in Baltimore. Um, right immediately in the wake of the ghost ship disaster, the city came through and kind of just shut, started shuttering these places. Some of them, it's for the best, but there were a lot of people that were displaced, uh, and a lot of people were scrambling to find, you know, new places to, to, you know, do their art. And, um, particularly like, you know, band, it, I most felt the, the effects in like the band, you know, in the, in the music scene in Baltimore, there's a lot of bands that just, you know, found it very difficult to keep going. Well, there's a couple of things that I want to get to. The, there was a response to that crackdown where people were really pissed. And it was like the backlash against the shuttering of these places was even stronger than the impulse to shut them down. Long story short, the, the mayor of Baltimore City developed a, a safe arts task force, which has, instead of um, the city going around and shutting these unsafe places down, they decided to make a task force which was tasked with working with the places to make them safe and figuring out how to get these places up to code and potentially giving them some latitude on fines or, you know, whatever it took to get them up to code. You know, the the, the city w uh, impaneled uh, people from the fire marshal and uh, engineers and like structural engineers architects and code enforcement people to go through. And as a, as a crew, they would go through and inspect these places and they would make recommendations and the places would be given a certain time period to get up to code. So it's, this is an interesting thing that's, that's happened in Baltimore. And, um, you know, some of the places didn't have the momentum to, to get through that whole process, but thank Christ, the, the compound had the organization and the 
the backing to to be one of the places that um, I mean we're still working with the city to get up to code, but we we were able to hang in there and you know actually get these things done. Like we're in the process of getting sprinklers. We just, I had to put a new railing in the studio for the stairs and all of these things that are that are going to make the place like bring it up to absolute legitimacy, which is which is an, an interesting thing. I've, you know, a lot of these places you know, like live, work, art spaces, they tend to, you know, live in in this limbo state, which is really stressful, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, thankfully, like the, this place is getting, getting legitimate. It is interesting how, you know, it, it, it seems as time goes along, it's becoming even more difficult to do rehearsal spaces or recording studio spaces in traditional warehouse type situations because of things mm-hmm. like that and you know real estate costs also uh get in the way of that so it seems that that even drive that drives people even more to home studio spaces mm. yeah. more than ever before yeah like people with um yeah mostly small like in the box recording situations you know Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. So work-life balance, which is something mm-hmm. we talk about a lot. How's yeah. that going? It's tough. It's tough. Um, I currently work a full-time job actually at a museum in Baltimore, and I, I've been doing recording. Um, it's Thankfully, it's a very flexible job, so if I need to take a day off, it's not usually an issue. You know, I live at the studio to save money. It can be really exhausting. Like, you know, there's not a lot of privacy. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to sort of take a break. Like, I mean, I, I, I dream of a time, you know, when I could, you know, work in the studio on a, you know, for, you know, get a good solid day's work and then be able to sort of just that be that have that be my job is, you know, is of course always, you know, something we're probably all chasing. I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, the studio is getting, is picking up in business. Like I said, this current studio location has only been firing for maybe a year and a half. And I've watched the business steadily increase as the, as the name gets around and as albums start coming out. And so at some point, you know, you reach, I guess I'll hopefully reach a point where I, I just, you know, sever the, you know, cut ties with the, with the day job. But, you know, and also, you know, my girlfriend, you know, we need to spend time with each other. So it's like between those, between the three things, it's, um, it's difficult, you know, because you can't do them all to their peak. You know, you can't do them all as well as you want to sometimes. And yeah. I feel like I'm doing about as much in the studio as I physically can. I mean, there's stuff going on every week. You know, we'll do one session or another. Being in Baltimore, it's it's always going to be a tough place to run a recording studio. Not only that, but just to be a freelance engineer and support yourself. So I guess, you know, taking for granted that I'll be having to find other sources of income and alternatively making the studio having the studio be a place that's completely open to outside engineers. I don't have to be here for every single session that that happens that generates income for the studio. That's a crucial thing. And honestly, I feel like those aspects are developing. Like the studio is, is picking up more business and 
so we'll see where it goes. It's all a fucking experiment. Um, right now, <laughs> right now, it's like I'm happy with where I'm at because I like I like the job that I have at the museum. I uh-huh. quite enjoy it. I feel like I'm good at it. There's a lot of it's a wide variety of tasks and skills that like and problem solving that you know I've been doing it for a long time. So I I enjoy it. It's not a chore to go to work. But just the time commitment is is really. Yeah, it's if you think about it, it can drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, the space you yeah. live there, mm-hmm. and you work out of there as, as a studio. Yeah, the, the the studio is situated on the edge of a courtyard, and so when I go home, I just walk across the courtyard into a a uh, a row house that's on the other side. So it's not physically connected, but it's uh, it's part of the same complex of buildings. Okay. Okay. Just so, clear. yeah. So it's, there is a separation there. I have some privacy. If there's a session going in in the studio that I'm not a part of, I can, you know, I can get away into my house. So <laughs> yeah, you can escape it. What have been the challenges for you as a recording professional over the years that you could cite that, uh, Really, really kind of uh, threw you for a loop. And obviously the fire is one of them. You know, it can be very challenging work. You have to have a positive attitude and, a, and a, an enthusiasm and a love for what you're doing because it's so, you know, the, the, the problems can be so complex that, you know, that, that it's the amount of just commitment you have to have to it. It's, it can be, it can feel really kind of unrewarding sometimes. You know, you could record a record that you think sounds fine and then, you know, the band isn't happy with it and then they scrap it and go with somebody else. I mean, that's cr- that can be crushing, you know? Yeah. You know it could, yeah, it could really be a, a crushing thing. Or, you know, you could choose to say that you did what you could and it just didn't work out. And, you know, I'm, I need to learn from that what I can and, you know, take on, take on the next project without carrying that, that with you. I think that that's been the most challenging thing is turning that into a teaching experience for yourself. Yeah. And, and also teaching in, in, in that, in the sense that you, you know, you, there's t- technical things that you, you could have done differently, but also just keeping an attitude and keeping things in perspective and not letting it necessarily be that is the audit of your entire existence, you know, like that, <laughs> that, 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 that is, you know, who you are, you know, like this, this disappointment or so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to make it sound too dramatic because there are a lot of these things that are not necessarily in your control, you know, people's tastes and, and yeah, I mean, I guess that's basically it. Just, just learning from those things and, and turning them into a positive thing. There's a lot of um, rejection, wouldn't you say? In- sure. As we go along, you know, here and there, we encounter, like you say, people's taste that you're just like, what are you thinking? Or or people's unhappiness when you think, man, this is outstanding. And uh, it's a, that is a constant challenge. Yeah. And also that, you know, it's like aesthetic things, but it's also things that are even more arbitrary that, you know, an artist might not be satisfied unless they're the ones moving the faders. Like no matter what it sounds like, it's, you know, there, there, there are these intangible things that can lead to a good or bad experience in the studio or good associations with the mix that are, uh, it's really interesting to, um, I don't know, to sort of be open to the fact that it's not all your fault <laughs> or something, you know, or it's like, it's not the studio's fault or it's not uh, the equipment's fault. It's like there, there are, you know, there's so many factors, you know, abstract and personal. I mean, that's the one thing that is at the same time, that's what makes it, you know, kind of the most challenging thing. And so satisfying when you get it, you know, when you get it just right, like yeah. when it works out. I mean, I think that's what's kept me going is just this, this drive to do something which is kind of almost impossible to like satisfy four musicians. It can seem 
completely daunting what the the whole process teaches you about like how to approach problems and how to go through life and you know in so many different ways is really what really what keeps me going back to it because because yeah it's it's like it's possibly the most complex physics equation you could ever imagine you know like going from room acoustics to you know all the way down to basic psychology in the in the in the control room um, yeah, in the course of a, a in the course of a six to eight hour session. Yeah, exactly. What do you do to further educate yourself about the the craft, and what do you do to motivate yourself? Experimentation is something that just like personal experimentation. You know, I I have a a band that I'm in, and it's I think that is is really the the way that I'm able to work out a lot of ideas that I had and kind of see what things can do. You know, maybe more so than reading an interview about how somebody used this mic on this drum or something, you know, like it's more so, you know, just, just working on your own stuff because you're not doing it on somebody else's dime because it's hard, it's hard to experiment in the, in the, in a studio setting where you're, you know, somebody's paying for the time and you're meant to get produce a certain result and you don't have a lot of time for, you know, for, uh, you know, fucking around and like, well, what if we try it this way? And just like trying to throw stuff at the wall. Like that's, I, I hate working that way. I, I like to have things kind of pretty well rolling by the time we're doing critical listening and already knowing what, you know, what mics we're going to be using, all of that stuff. I, I try to have that sort of already in place before the session even starts. It's really the experimentation with my own stuff and finding out, you know, remembering other problems that I had. It's like, oh, well, you know, if this is sounding like this and we, we need it to change in this direction, that reminds me of this time that I was fucking around with this. It's stressful to do that experimentation on somebody else's session. I think just being in a band and having a playful experimental attitude about recording is is really crucial. So if people want to find out more about you, tempohouserecording.com is one. Yeah, that's right. I mean that's that's the that's the best way. There's an info, you know, you can just get info there that goes directly I you know, I get email there and yeah, start a conversation that would be great. That on the on the website there's um, details about the studio, some photographs and we also have a little blog that's fairly up to date. It's not particularly active, but it's up to date. We've got some new photos on there and um, we welcome any kind of postings on there for sure. But that's a good spot. TempoHouseRecording.com. Yeah, it'd be great if, if anybody wanted to check it out. Let me know what you think. And one of the key elements of, of Tempo House, I have to point out that um, is probably one of the most critical aspects of your studio. There is an espresso machine on site. I have the La Pavoni Euro Piccolo, which is a uh, completely manual lever pull machine and it makes great froth it's a uh, it's very it's a, it's a petite completely mechanical it just has a single boiler in it and uh, one lever pull that in itself is a machine to be reckoned with it's very picky about the grounds about the humidity of the room about um, you know the, the 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 amount of espresso in the in the porta filter it's um that's a that's that's another ongoing challenge is pouring the pulling the perfect shot out of that little guy it's um but it's very, again, very satisfying endeavor. Is that espresso machine in any way similar to your approach to recording by any chance? I would say for sure. It's another piece of equipment that I bought based on what I value about mechanical, like dead simple, designed to be in continuous use kind of thing. You know, that, those kinds of criteria. It's beautiful. I mean, it's a basic, it's chrome, but it's it's also they haven't changed the design on those since they started making them in uh you know 1953 or something like that that definitely goes along with the uh 
the equipment selections that I've made in the audio world too, for sure. <laughs> Hearing you speak about that, I, I realized, oh yeah, there's there's a connection there. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to um, yeah to buy equipment that you that you work with for sure. You know that you develop a personal relationship with. You know. Yeah, day after day. You know it's going to be there. You know it's going to work. Yeah, I, I feel that way about uh, the Grace uh, monitor controller that I use. It's just it's just like a really great piece of gear that uh, mm -hmm. does its job and has pretty you know pretty great functionality. I got to say, I just got one of those Mara one inch eight tracks, the JH twenty fours. So I'm just getting into that. So that's my newest piece of equipment that I'm excited to just really just put to the test and beat the shit out. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and not to go down a gear rabbit hole, but uh, yeah, for the listener, Mara Machines is uh, Chris Mara, who's located in Nashville. He runs Welcome to 1979, and he refurbishes uh, old MCI uh, tape machines and completely goes through them and spiffs them up. Totally, yeah. It's it's practically a brand new machine. It's very smooth. Yeah, I'm looking forward to spending some time with that one. Well, on that note. Craig, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to talk to me about your world there in Baltimore. Yeah, it was really, really enjoyable talking to you. Well, very good. Thank you again, and uh, take care. Nice to meet you, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you, Craig. See it. Craig Bowen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Inspiring guy. I hope you enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that myself. Before we go, I want to encourage you to stop by our sponsors' websites. Those are the folks that help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. I'm talking about Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, and the License Lab. And we want to thank our friend Cliff Truesdell and Chuck Smith for all their efforts. And I want to thank you for listening to me ramble each week. It's a pleasure to do so for you. Spread the word on social media. Tell all your friends. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>